This edition of the Supercluster podcast is powered by Dropbox. Here at Supercluster headquarters in New York City, we use Dropbox every day to produce our content, including this podcast. Hello, space fans. This is Jamie at Supercluster headquarters with another edition of the Supercluster podcast. I'm here with Tristan. Hi. And Amanda. Hey. To look back into space history at the story of the Apollo Soyuz test project. The mission was designed to test the rendezvous and docking systems that would join together spacecraft from two rival nations. If it worked, it would make international space rescue missions possible. But this mission was about much more than a docking system. This mission was the beginning of peace in space. The beginning of an era in which astronauts leave their political rivalries behind on Earth and travel the cosmos as fellow humans. This is the story of the handshake in space, the Apollo-Soyuz test project. The Apollo-Soyuz test project happened in July of 1975. And to understand this story, we have to set the context. This was at the height of the Cold War. So, of course, this is between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. But do you have any idea exactly how much nuclear weapon buildup was happening at this time? Oh, yeah, a lot. I actually do know a thing or two about the Cold War. Both countries were building up tremendous amounts of arms, enough to wipe all life off the planet. The Russians had a program called Dead Hand, which was a series of triggers and seismic devices linked up to radio towers where basically they could detect a nuclear weapon detonation on their soil that wasn't one that they'd you know, intended in a test site. And then a bunch of missiles from silos would go to their pre-programmed targets, usually all over the Western developed world. Wow. This is an automated system? That yeah, just... completely automated. Yes. And, and it was one of the key components in the mutually assured destruction thing. The Russians really had that side of things locked down. Wow. If, you, if the U.S. ever tried to nuke Russia, it would have been really, really bad for us. And a lot of people think Dead Hands still is active. That's what I'm saying. How do we know for sure? Yeah. We don't. Because what, they're going to tell us, oh, sure. We yeah. shut it down. <laughs> no, we, we definitely don't. Yeah, we canceled that a long time ago. So I looked at the numbers, and at this point, when the Apollo-Soyuz test project happened, the combined power of the two nations in their nuclear weapons was 8,000 megatons. That's 8 billion pounds of TNT. So you're absolutely right when you say it's enough to wipe out all human civilization. Yeah. And of course, they both had the you know mutually assured destruction because each one could counter strike. You could sure. never completely wipe out. They had that. Enemy. We had Star Wars. We had all sorts of countermeasures. So we've all seen Doctor Strange Love, I think. So basically, what what maybe you're getting at is they realized they could blow up the Earth, so they needed a backup plan. Well. Yeah, They're like, to I mean, the stars. Yeah, I think what, what the context really is about is the fact that there was so much ability to kill everything that it was outstripping our own ability to control it. Like people were starting to feel like war was becoming inevitable just because we had so many guns, just mm -hmm. because the weapons were there. Yeah. Some, something was going to spark the fire. So this led to a desire to ease tensions, to have detente between the two nations. Obviously, when you have two people with guns pointed at each other's heads, it's difficult to start walking them back. But that's what they wanted to do at this time. So as they continued to quietly build more and more and more nuclear weapons, outwardly, they wanted to create some kind of relaxation of tension. There's this Russian word, razryadka, which means relaxation of tension, <laughs> that was tossed around a lot. It's a beautiful word. It rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, razryadka. Razryadka. Um, <laughs> so this is also happening at the same time as the broader space race, of course. So in 1969, when we finally landed on the moon, this had the effect of stepping back a little bit 
it was the beginning of maybe lessening that tension yeah. because it's not that the wars were over. It was just that such a big milestone had been crossed and they knew that they weren't going to make it to the moon, that it kind of, you know, there's less tension in the space race. But it would still take five years after that moon landing to finally get this uh, collaboration to happen. So even though there was all this conflict on Earth, outer space was somehow separate from these conflicts. It was seen as, as a realm where we could work together. In fact, Henry Kissinger, Nixon's foreign policy advisor, told the NASA administrator in 1971 that as long as you stick to space, do anything you want to do. In fact, I want you to tell your counterparts in Moscow that the president has sent you on this mission. So they were straight up saying, let's collaborate. Yeah. And I think from Kissinger's perspective, he's probably thinking, oh, my God, we have probably, I don't know, five opportunities to make up any lost ground that we've had with these people in terms of social relations. And, and I don't know, I think he'd take anything at that point. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've also got the Vietnam War ending at the same time. And so that's also relaxing tensions. And so what this led to is in April of 1972, the U.S. and the USSR signed something called the Agreement Concerning Cooperation in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space for Peaceful Purposes. And that's what officially committed both nations to launch this joint mission, the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project, planned for 1975. They kind of were throwing barbs at each other because right before those tensions relaxed, the Russians published a picture of the Apollo 14 launch with this really famously uh, propagandistic statement. Yeah, they <laughs> over a photograph of the Apollo 14 launch in 1971, the Soviet press printed, The armed intrusion of the United States and Saigon puppets into Laos is a shameless trampling underfoot of international law. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Tensions were high. Tensions were high. <laughs> tensions people, were high. People, we were mad at them. They were mad at us. <laughs> But as usual, scientists just wanted to work together and leave all the political bullshit behind. So before we get into the story, we should meet the crew. We should talk about the crew. And there's some really interesting people flying on this mission. We had two rookies, one of which is kind of not a rookie, and a few legends of space flight. I think I'll start with the Soviet Union. The commander on the Soviet side was Alexei Leonov. Now, this is a world-famous cosmonaut, the first person to ever walk in space, a huge figure in the space race. That spacewalk was his first flight. This is 10 years later, and this will be his second and last flight. So this is like a mega space celebrity that everyone in the world knows flying to space. Yeah, they probably would have sent Gagarin if he hadn't died a couple of years prior. Yeah, it's like that level yeah. of, of significance. His flight engineer, the, the second crew member on the Soviet side, was Valery Kubasov, a lesser known but still you know, noteworthy cosmonaut for flying on Soyuz 6, which was a joint mission with two other Soyuz capsules and was three spaceships in orbit with seven cosmonauts in orbit all at once, which was quite an accomplishment at the time. And he was also the first person to do welding in space. On the U.S. side... Wait, hold up. <laughs> Imagine being the first guy to ever weld something in space and how terrifying that experience must yeah, have been. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. Like you're, like you're working on a pressurized capsule with a subtle torch in outer space and maybe some of your friends are in that capsule while you're working on it. So like you're basically holding a match to a bomb and hoping it doesn't explode. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of that, but it really is scary because fire is one of the most terrifying things you can have in space. Yeah. Now, I don't, it, it makes me wonder whether they used that, like what method did they use to weld? It could have been electric, you know, yeah, it could totally. have been like arc welder, but I, anyway, you're generating extraordinary heat. Yeah. Yeah. It's hot enough to melt metal. Yeah. And, and your friends are in the tin can that you're, that you're melting. <laughs> space it's a risky welder. maneuver. Yeah. Such high stakes. But if you can manufacture things in space, it's a huge advantage. So sure. it's worth it. That is true. Out. They were preparing for the colony. And yes. you know, if, they, if they die, they're heroes of the Union. 
Totally. Alexei Leonov, by the way, is twice a hero of the Soviet Union. He has two of those little stars to wear on his shirt. On the American side, we have the commander, Tom Stafford. And now this is his fourth flight. He's a total spaceflight veteran. And his most notable flight before this would have been Apollo 10. Right before the Apollo 11 mission that actually landed people on the moon, he flew on the mission that did everything but. They got very, very close to the surface and he got great views and helped to pave the way for Armstrong and and Buzz. The command module pilot on that flight was Vance Brand. This was his first flight. He would later go on to command three space shuttle flights, but he's the rookie on the mission. Now, the rookie who's not really a rookie is Donald Deke Slayton. Now, he is someone that you've probably heard of because he was one of the original Mercury 7 and has been involved in the U.S. space program pretty much since its inception. After his selection in 1962, he was grounded for an abnormal heart rhythm and never got to fly in space during Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, all that stuff. So he became the chief astronaut of the Apollo program, essentially the boss of all the astronauts. And he gets to pick who flies on what mission. So fast forward 16 years from his selection, he's finally cleared medically and he selects himself for this mission. Sure, because of course you'd do that. Why not? That's kind of cool that he could do that. Yeah, I'm not mad at it. Yeah. yeah. Well, there it wasn't over people's objections or anything like that. He they was were cleared. like, you're fit. He's yeah. probably extremely qualified. You deserve this. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Good for Deke. Yeah. It's the longest wait that anyone has ever had between their astronaut selection and their flight to space. And at the time, he was the oldest person to ever fly in space. I think it took until John Glenn returning uh, to have someone older go up. I guess that would give him and Alexei Leonov a little bit to talk about just because there was a huge gap between Leonov's first flight and then his next one. Absolutely. And also, they both came up through their space programs during that era of the real, you know, the real meat of the space race. And it, undoubtedly, Deke Slayton at some point was probably cursing Alexei Leonov. Like, how, oh, he, you know, he beat out my friends for this first spacewalk and they were enemies. I assume they knew each other's names, but even if they didn't, they must have known that the Soviets would send their best guys on this incredibly important mission because they knew that they were the best guys that, you know, the Americans had. And so they probably just imagined, you know, we're up against the people that we've been competing against for the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. Yeah. So you have this this incredible crew of veterans and rookies and veteran rookies and heroes all working together. But still, we're looking at this from the perspective of it all working out and they all became mm-hmm. friends. Yeah. But at the time, this was a really difficult challenge to try and get two nations, two rivals to work together. The U.S. and the Soviet space programs had very different ideas about how to build successful spacecraft. Now, you know from NASA stories that they use highly trained astronauts operating complex systems, and they have tons of redundancies and fallbacks. Totally. So if anything goes wrong, they can fix it, like Apollo 13. Yeah, I mean, there's all these classic NASA stories about so-and-so being the best man to ever wield a joystick and guy doing crazy flips in a CSM to catch a lander that's coming off the moon with a with tolerances that no human should ever be able to achieve. Exactly. But, they, but doing it anyway. Yeah. And that's like a that's a classic part of NASA mythos. Yeah, the idea that the mission is always going to keep going by any means necessary. And that it depends on a person. Yes. But, um, and that's funny how it's always been depicted that way in cinema as well. It's like something's always going to go wrong, but then like Brad Pitt's going to swoop in and he's going to take control of the joystick and keep the mission going exactly. and fly it to Venus. It's crazy. Did they you just watch Ad Astra? Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I, but I yes, that's that is the ethos. That's the way that they thought about it. Is that you're gonna you're gonna pull a rabbit out of a hat. You're gonna have contingency procedures and backup systems, and you're always gonna keep that mission going. The Soviet spacecraft, in contrast, were as automated as possible. The idea is you create this foolproof, reliable system that would not be prone to failure. But if something does fail, the problem is you usually just have to end the mission and land. So these are really different philosophies that have to butt heads here, and they each criticize each other. They were literally breathing different air. Yeah. Yes. The, the Russians had a mix of oxygen and nitrogen that was pretty close to Earth's atmosphere, <laughs> maybe a little bit more oxygen-rich. But the Americans did a 100% oxygen environment, yeah. which actually on, on some previous missions caused some, some issues because there was electrical sparking and 100% oxygen environment, a spark ignites all of the gas. Yes. Yeah. Totally. So yeah, I mean, it's a, we always think of as fellow humans breathing the same air, but no, they literally were not breathing the same air. That's crazy. The um, symbolism behind that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that'll come up again later because it had implications for this mission. Where do you guys fall? What do you think? Are you more Soviet or American when it comes to space philosophy? Um, it's a really tough question. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm almost more Soviet. I think I'm a little more Soviet in this I, case. Yeah, I mean, I think I would go a little hybrid, something highly automated, but then endless contingency systems and hella trained astronauts. Like, that's probably what I would yeah, say. Yeah, it's like yeah. everyone you should know. definitely be trained. Yeah. Like, let's not discount that. But also, it's like, hey, if things are, if shit's hitting the fan up there, maybe we should all go home and take a nap. You know, I, yeah. I don't really want to stay up there and like figure out what to do with half of the supplies that we thought we needed. Well, and that's that's the, the conflict. And that's what the Soviets were criticizing the Americans for is like, OK, so you're going to put a person in charge of something extremely complex where if anything goes wrong, they die. Why would you not automate that? Yeah, you know? totally. I also just know that the ultimate end of the Russian ideal would be to just build really, really great robots and send them to space. And I'm all for that. Yeah, I kind of like that idea. As long as the robots don't become sentient and start eating the humans. That's fine. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> that's, that's the one failure mode of that approach yeah, to space Yeah, I guess, I guess that's where you just have to that, fail-proof I don't think that it's one. a failure mode. I, I, I think that means that yeah. the robots win. Yeah. You know, now, now they won humanity. fair and square. Humanity is continued by robots. <laughs> so they, of course, criticized each other's approaches. But as the process went on, they had to train together. They had to build a space system together. And this eased the tensions between the two scientific organizations. They had to fly to each other's space complexes. NASA teams went to Russia and visited the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And Soviets came to NASA and inspected Apollo craft. And for months and months, they were flying back and forth. And it's really hard to stay angry at people when you work together that way. And there's this great quotation um, from Vance Brand where he was talking about the cultural differences that occurred. He says, we thought they were pretty aggressive people and they probably thought we were monsters. So we very quickly broke through that because when you deal with people that are in the same line of work as you are and you're around them for a short time even, why you discover they're human beings. They were probably a more secretive society, partly because their population had been overrun by invasions for thousands of years. And, you know, in this country, we don't have to experience that burden. So we tend to be much more open as people. Hmm. That's very touching. Yeah. It turns out other people are people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People are people. There was also the language barrier, of course, and there's a fun story here about how they solved that. For a long time, you know, the Russians were trying to learn English and speak entirely in English, and they would have conversations with the Americans in English and vice versa in Russian, but they just couldn't get it right. And so, you know, one night while they're relaxing over some drinks, Tom Stafford and a backup commander on the Soviet side named Anatoly Filipchenko were having a really hard time having a conversation. So Stafford says, look, 
I'll speak Russian to you and you speak English to me and maybe we can understand better. And Stafford says, you know, recalling this later, he says, so we started and oh boy, it worked slick as a whistle. So we had a couple more drinks and it even started working better. <laughs> There's a surprising amount of alcohol involved in this mission that directly contributed to the success of it. <laughs> yes, alcohol, and as we'll see later, not alcohol. <laughs> so yeah, it turned out that the type of stumbling and kid level mistakes that would happen got everybody laughing because the, you know you, you have a, a crappy Russian speaker speaking to someone who knows it really well and vice versa. And so that you know really worked well for them. However, Tom Stafford had this really heavy Southwestern drawl accent that he couldn't get rid of even when he's speaking Russian. Didn't they call it an Oklahomsky accent? They did, yeah. So uh, Alexei Leonov later said that there were three languages spoken on the mission, <laughs> Russian, English, and Oklahomsky. And Love then later that. he added a fourth, which was Rustin, because it was Russian in Houston. Wow. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, so they, they really managed to break it down. Leonov had also commented that because they were all professionals speaking professional language, formal speech, technical terms, procedures, that helped build trust very quickly, which helped break down barriers even further. We'll, we'll bring up more on the Oklahoma connection a little later. Yes. Put a pin in that. So I wanted to briefly touch on the docking mechanism that they had to build. Oh, you mean the androgynous peripheral attach system? That is what I mean, the androgynous <laughs> peripheral attach system, also known as the International Rendezvous and Docking Mission and the International Docking System. Wow. There's several different names for this thing. However, the name that you said is what was on the official NASA press packet and is therefore the name. So... This, again, was a five-year development cycle for this, but it began when uh, the NASA administrator suggested to Anatoly Blagonrovov in a meeting in New York that the two nations should collaborate on astronaut safety and that if they could dock equipment together in space, this would help them save each other if there was any kind of space emergency. So they co-developed this docking system, and through a series of in-person meetings and letters and phone calls, they made the design, and they ended up actually with different docking mechanisms. They were different but compatible, which I think is a really good encapsulation of what this whole mission is, is these two different approaches that are different but compatible and maybe can help each other out. I think this is another great moment that we probably can't emphasize enough. Someone could have just said no. Sorry, we don't really care. Fuck you guys. You're the Americans. Fuck you guys. You're the USSR. We're not going to do anything to help your people out in space because we hate you. But the better part of humanity decided, no, this is fine. We should work this out. This is, yeah. this is something that we as humans care enough about. We care enough about other humans to make this happen. And that, that's kind of what blows my mind is that before any charts got drawn up, before anything got actually launched into space, that two people wrote letters to each other and thought, hey, we're the only ones up here. And if something goes wrong, we would help your guys out. Yeah, we have a space program. You have spaceships. We have spaceships. We should be able to help each other out while we're up there. It'd be silly if we couldn't open each other's door yeah. and, and save each other. Meanwhile, the world leaders of both of these countries are stockpiling nuclear weapons and, and crazy you know, delivery systems to destroy each other. Literally installing red phones in each other's offices that were hotlines that they could pick up to make sure that they didn't blow up the world. And as you had mentioned earlier, of course, they weren't breathing the same air. So the docking system not only had to be a mechanical linkage to join the two spacecraft, but also an airlock. The 
Apollo spacecraft was 5 PSI of pure oxygen. The Soyuz spacecraft was 15 PSI of nitrogen and oxygen, as you said, just like sea level air on Earth. So you had to equalize those pressures before they could move between the two craft. So the reason being is you'd get the bends. Yeah, exactly. Just like if you were diving, if you went from the high pressure to the low pressure, you would get gases, <laughs> you get bubbles in your blood from gases yeah, coming out of solution. Mostly nitrogen. Yeah, and that would be terrible. So now we can go to the countdown and launch. And uh, we don't need to belabor this too much, but I think there's just something absolutely beautiful about the fact that you have two nations, two launch complexes, two mission control centers with two commanders, two countdowns happening nearly simultaneously. There were NASA flight controllers in Soviet mission control and Soviet mission controllers in NASA mission control. And status reports and countdowns were spoken in both English and Russian. So they're talking back and forth to each other to coordinate the missions. Also, interestingly, this Apollo flight, which was the last flight of an Apollo command and service module, had no number. The call sign was simply Apollo. And on the Soyuz side, it was the same thing. They hadn't numbered that one either, so it was just called Soyuz. And it sort of becomes this name of their entire space programs, because for so long it was Apollo versus Soyuz. They launched on the same day, Soyuz first, then Apollo. One rocket in Florida, one in Kazakhstan, 7,000 miles apart on the opposite sides of the world, and they launched within seven and a half hours of each other. And I want to play a little clip from a BBC report of the launch uh, with a countdown on the launch and their reaction. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, engine one, start. Zero, one, zero, launch, commit. We have a liftoff. All engines. And the pull away. Terrible, terrifying roar. It completely engulfs us here. The astronauts leave the Earth. So now they're in space. And before the rendezvous and docking, they had two days floating in space. And I think that this is really an interesting time to think about. Because you've got these two crews who had been training together for more than two years. They know each other. They're already friends. But what's about to happen is this symbolic moment for the whole rest of the world. Until this mission, the USSR had been notoriously secretive about their space program, even keeping the details from the Soviet people themselves. This flight was the first time that a Soviet space mission was televised live. The first time that the launch, the operation in space, and the landing was actually seen by the Soviet people. The Soyuz capsule that flew this mission was the first ever to be inspected by a foreign flight crew before a flight. And now the astronauts and cosmonauts were about to fly together and visit each other's spaceships. These two crews had to have realized that they were about to ceremoniously end the space race. Yeah, I think the other thing that's, that's really crazy about that is we mentioned this earlier. Those astronauts knew who the other the astronauts on the other side of the space barrier were, you know. Well, I mean, they trained together for years before but, they but prior to that you know oh they, yeah they, oh they, yeah yeah absolutely and, and yeah and in that moment of doubt as you're hanging in a tin can in outer space duct taped to another tin can well you're not you're about to be duct taped to another tin can if a crew that you trained with was just faking it the whole time remember these people still saw each other as brutal enemies yeah and you, know? you don't know and you're absolutely right you don't know even up to this moment if there's something else behind this yeah and i want to play a little clip of a news report here that gives you a sense of some of that tone, because we're talking with such a sense of hope and accomplishment. Because it already happened. And togetherness, yeah, because it already happened. But just listen to the way that this is spoken of here. From ABC Space Headquarters in New York, here is correspondent Peter Jennings. 
Union in Space, talked about for weeks, months, and years now between an American space capsule and a Russian space capsule. Greeted with widespread enthusiasm, some indifference, and occasional criticism. So yeah, you can hear that in the news report, There, this is somewhat serious. Like, this isn't just hooray. There's been all kinds of discussion of whether this should even occur. So on July 17th, the two spacecraft dock in space, and I'm just going to play one quick clip here of a compliment that Houston paid the astronauts. And what I love about that is essentially you have the mission loop silent for huge swaths of time because the docking sequence is really long. You see the spacecraft as this little pinpoint and then it slowly grows in the window. And for that whole time, no one really says anything. There's not really a lot going on. And so you're just tense trying to make sure that it goes right. And then after 45 minutes, it happens. And then even more time goes by and then they call you and they're like, OK, beautiful, you yeah. know, docking. That's Looks really great. good. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah, we know. <laughs> I mean, also going back to the whole fundamental difference in Russian and American engineering and training and, and philosophy, if any of these people fucked up in any way, right, there's going to be a massive catastrophe. Everyone was dead or at least half the crew was dead. Right. So if you're an American and you're in there, those two days of silence and you're thinking, wow, I hope this Russian pilot is up to scratch. I hope that he doesn't fuck up and kill us all. Yeah. And then the Russians probably thinking, God, those American systems better be, worth it. <laughs> better be worth it. Well, and that's the thing is that there's all of these perceptions that are happening on Earth. Yeah. And the people in space are actually the only people who don't have those worries because yeah. they know that the other crew is... I mean, there's certainly in the back of their head, they could think maybe there's some secret spy going on. Sure. But for the U.S. and the Soviet crews actually in space, the astronauts and cosmonauts are friends. Totally. They're colleagues. They implicitly trust each other. But for everyone else, people, you know, anyone who isn't super close to them back on Earth, they don't have any of that understanding. They don't know that there's the trust there. And so it, it can be a really tense moment. Yeah. So three hours after the docking, and they had to take time because, of course, you have to equalize the pressures and do things like that, make sure that it's safe. They open the hatch, and the two mission commanders were the first to float towards each other. So you have Thomas Stafford and Alexei Leonov reaching out about to shake hands. And we should just think again about who these people are, even though they know each other, even though they're friends. The symbolism here is incredible. You have Tom Stafford, this veteran astronaut with a decade of experience who definitely knew the people who died in the Apollo 1 fire, that he definitely was friends with the people who tried to beat step by step each accomplishment that the Russians beat us towards in the space race. You know, the first person in space, the first orbit, the first spacewalk, each one of these things. The U.S. crew undoubtedly was sweating those moments. And then on the other side, you have Alexei Leonov, the hero of the Soviet Union, one of the biggest cosmonaut celebrities in the world. These the guy are, who beat them. Yeah, the guy who beat them. Two formal rivals. These are nations that at one time would have killed, probably at, during this time, would have killed to know each other's secrets. And they're shaking hands as friends in outer space floating high above Metz, France. That moment, that singular televised vignette of the handshake was mostly for the people back down on Earth because for the five men flying the mission, the barriers had already been broken down. They were already friends and colleagues in outer space. But that moment, the handshake, really was the end of the space race. I mean, the other thing that just made me think of was the Cold War is largely defined by intelligence and counterintelligence kind of working cross-purposes. If you're the CIA or if you're the KGB and you find out that you have an opportunity to get 
access to an American astronaut or a Russian cosmonaut, the diplomatic powers that be have said, no, no, you got to let these slide. That's crazy. Yeah. The fact that all the players in this game survived at all kind of blows my mind. It's, it's really incredible. So the next thing that happens after the handshake is really fun because they have a few days of essentially hanging out in space. This is a time of science, food, and jokes, is how I like to think of it. It was a worldwide broadcast. You have these happy, the image of the happy space travelers, the astronauts and cosmonauts hanging out. They conducted joint scientific experiments. One of these studied the development of fish eggs in weightlessness, which is a very interesting experiment. They gave each other flags of each other's nations, exchanging gifts. They also gave each other tree seeds from each country, which then were planted back at home by each of the nations. They ate meals together. They talked on the phone with the U.S. President Gerald Ford and Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev. And then I wanted to read one section of that phone call because I thought it was kind of funny. Who wants to read for the president? I'll be the president. Okay, you be the president and I'll be Valery Kubasov. Thank you very much, Vance. I might like to say a word or two to Valery Kubasov, the other member of the cosmonaut crew. I might say to him as well as Colonel Leonov, I remember both of you on that enjoyable Saturday last September when both crews visited the White House and joined me at a picnic over in Virginia. We flew from the White House over to this picnic just across the river. We had some crab specialties that I enjoyed, and I think you did. I'm sure you were having a little different menu, somewhat different food on this occasion. What are you having over there, out in space? And Kubasov says, we get good space food. There is some Russian food, some Russian music, some juice, some coffee, and a lot of water. No beer, no crap. <laughs> so very friendly atmosphere. Also during this call, the president called Deke Slayton the world's oldest space rookie. Yeah, that was interesting. It was a backhanded compliment. Yes, yes. But I think that Deke Slayton handled it very well because the president's asking him, do you have any advice, given that you're the oldest space rookie for people coming up? And he said, I have a lot of advice for young people, but I guess probably one of the most important bits is to, number one, decide what you really want to do. And then secondly, never give up until you have done it. That's beautiful. And That's I think that his, good advice. his career really showed the power of that. So they also did a series of experiments with a furnace in space. This was the first time we had a furnace in space. I'm going to play More a little... More fire. They're really... Oh, yeah. They're into that. I'm going to play a little clip of this. When ground controllers ask American astronauts and Soviet cosmonauts in the Earth-orbiting Apollo-Soyuz test project mission in July what's cooking, they will not necessarily be inquiring about an evening meal of hot dogs or borscht. They will probably be referring to the seven scientific experiments which will be conducted in a multi-purpose electric furnace to demonstrate the effects of weightlessness on crystallization, convection, and other materials processing techniques. So they brought an electric furnace to space. On the lighter side of things, there was an amazing song created for this mission by Conway Twitty. <laughs> so Tom Stafford was a big country music fan. He was a big fan of Conway Twitty, and he got Conway Twitty to learn phonetic Russian and record his hit song, Hello, Darling. And Hello, Darling in Russian, and I'm going to butcher this, translates to Privyet uh, Radost. Yes, well done. <laughs> and it's haunting and weird, and I, actually, I like it more than the original. Yeah, it's we should, really... We should play it. We should play it. Oh, yeah, and this was also broadcast around the world. Yes. So everyone heard this Russian country song that wasn't from Russia. Privyet Radost. Что за встреча? Как время летит? Ты так чудесна, как была всегда. 
вы мили, ти счастлива, So yeah, that's great. Yes, that's amazing. So another bit of fun that Alexei Leonov had, and this is a quotation as translated into English by the Russian press. Before flight, I prepared stickers, labels for Stoli vodka, Moscow vodka, etc. I took containers with coffee, with borscht, and applied those labels on those containers. And so when we sat down to eat in the vehicle, I said, according to the Russian tradition, we must celebrate our first meeting. So they were very uncomfortable, but they went ahead and opened the containers and said, let's have a drink to our first meeting. And once they started drinking, they realized this was borscht. That's what was in the containers, and everybody was disappointed, actually. <laughs> Uh, do you is guys this, like do you guys like borscht? I love borscht. Yeah, it's pretty good. I've I, never I, had it. Oh, it's like a beet it's soup. Great. It's like so a beet. Good. I can understand how that'd be throw confused little, for like wine or something. Throw a little sour cream in there. It's great. Okay. Yeah. I think this is the first, to my knowledge, and I might be wrong about this. This is the first time I've ever heard of a prank in space. Oh, interesting. Hmm. I think there were some. I'll have to think about that. But I think there were some things that might count as a prank. Yeah, I think the sandwich thing the is sandwich definitely The sandwich probably a, counts as a prank. Almost a prank. I feel like it's just people fucking around in space. Yeah. But this is like a prank pulled on someone else. Well, I got an even better one for you. Because the other thing they did is that they recorded sounds of a party on Earth. Glasses clinking, people talking and laughing, including women, of which there were none on this flight. And then they played it back over the radio loop. And so Mission Control calls up to ask what's going on. And they said, oh, we finished our work, so we're having a party. It's yeah. great. <laughs> All kinds of practical <laughs> jokes. I love that. They, you know, it's crazy. You get these you get these two groups of people together and all they want to do is just crack jokes. Such high tensions. Pranks. Pranks. Just prank each other. Humor brings us it's all together. probably the worst place to prank someone, but they did it. I know, right? That's what I'm saying. They're just like lighting fires, putting stuff in furnaces, drinking yeah. borscht. Yeah. It's a crazy mission. It's an awesome mission. Yeah. And no one got hurt. Oh, wait. Oh, wait, we'll get to that. <laughs> One of the more interesting experiments that they did included the world's first engineered eclipse, an artificial eclipse. After the ships had undocked, Apollo blocked the sun to allow the Soyuz crew to take photographs of the sun's corona, which you normally can't see except during an eclipse. After that, they docked together briefly again to test the system and to switch which spacecraft was active and which was passive. The docking system allows for either ship to be controlling the attitude and orientation of, of the whole dock together mechanism. So that was the gist of the mission. You have lots of fun sharing food and culture, playing jokes on each other, playing jokes on the Earthlings back home. And then after they undocked, the Soviet crew stayed in space for two days and the Americans for five days because they had Earth observation experiments that they wanted to conduct. Now. I want to talk about the end of the mission for the NASA astronauts, and we need to come back to that philosophical difference that we talked about between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the debate between the complex astronaut control and complete automation. Both of the Russians got home fine, right? Yes, the Russians got home without incident. Now, this difference in philosophies was highlighted by the one serious problem that occurred during the otherwise completely successful Apollo-Soyuz test project. During the re-entry process, the Apollo astronauts had a checklist of things they had to do to prepare the spacecraft for its splashdown landing. But somehow, they missed one item on this list, turning off the Reaction Control System, or RCS, which is a group of small thrusters that control the orientation of the ship in outer space. They forgot to flip one switch. It might have been the loud noises in the cabin during re-entry that prevented Vance Brand from hearing the command to flip the switch. Or maybe Tom Stafford missed calling out that item on the list. There's no way to be sure, and reports vary, but that one missed switch put all three astronauts in the hospital for two weeks. The problem was this. 
The reaction control system, the system that was left on, runs on hypergolic fuel. Hypergolic fuel is a type of propellant that comes in two liquid parts. Mix these two liquids together and you get instant powerful ignition and burning. Problem is that hypergolic fuels are toxic, noxious, skin irritating, severe cough inducing poisons. With the RCS left on, it still expelled some unburnt fuel as the spaceship descended. When it was time to equalize pressure in the capsule, toxic fumes from the fuel came in through the air intake vents, flooding the interior. All three astronauts begin coughing violently. They're having trouble talking to each other and to mission control on the ground. After splashdown, the command module flipped, leaving the men dangling upside down from their harnesses, gasping and struggling to breathe. Vance Brand was closest to the duct opening and passed out from toxic hypoxia. He hung limp in his harness. Tom Stafford began heavy grunt breathing, a technique to try to keep pressure in your lungs and get enough oxygen to keep functioning. He grabbed the emergency oxygen masks, strapped one on his face, gave one to Deke Slayton, and used the third to revive Vance Brand. Then he actuated the system to turn the command module back upright, opened a vent valve, and cleared the air of the remaining toxic fumes. One switch on a long checklist was missed and three astronauts spend two weeks in a hospital in Honolulu. And the human operation versus automation debate continues. Well, at least they ended up in Hawaii. Yeah. Not a bad place to recover, honestly. Totally. Go outside in your little balcony, look at the sunset. It's pretty nice. Scary, though. Scary, yeah, but remember, for sure. the, these people are still hyper-competitive. You yeah. Know? The Russians got back fine. Yes. These guys were not just chilling out in Hawaii, sipping a pina colada. They were coughing their lungs out and mad as hell that they didn't do it perfectly. Yeah. And it, it's really got to feel strange. And, I, you know, I wonder if they had conversations with Kubasov and, and Leonov about it, you know, afterwards. The other thing that I'm always really fascinated by is the attitude of the Russians, the whole thing. They're pulling pranks in space. They're kind of generally having a great time with the Americans. But the difference between the American just general culture and the, the Soviet one was if any, either of those two guys said even the hint of the wrong thing in outer space, they were getting shot when they got back and right. they both knew it. So the fact that they were able to hang out in space with their new astronaut best friends and relax at all, I can't imagine it. Yeah, it's a whole other layer of pressure. If they divulged the wrong thing, they'd, they'd get disappeared. It yeah. would look like an accident. It wouldn't be a... They'd get suicided. Totally, totally. Or, you know, there was a technical failure on this, this test flight. It's tragic. Yeah, but still they're joking around. They're just yeah. laughing, having a good time in space. Putting borscht in the wine glasses. <laughs> so after the Apollo-Soyuz test project, the United States and Russia did not collaborate again in space until the shuttle Mir program, which was 18 years later. But that future program and the international teamwork in outer space that has followed would not have been possible without this unprecedented mission. Looking back on the mission, Vance Brand said this, I really believe that we were sort of an example to the countries. We were a little of a spark or a foot in the door that started better communications. Two rival nations still dealing with major political conflicts, still cooperating in space. Because where we are now, we have 20 years of ISS teamwork and countless joint missions, but we're still in a rivalry with Russia. We still have political tensions that disappear when we go to space. Since this project, people from more than 25 other nations have joined the astronaut family and shared their scientific knowledge. And now, when American astronauts want to go to the ISS, they fly on Russian Soyuz capsules. This mission really speaks to the basic human need to explore. It's something that brings us together. Even when things on Earth 
aren't peaceful in outer space, we want to just share knowledge and be humans. And here at Supercluster, we hope that everyone who dreams to fly in space can someday feel the way that Deke Slayton did after all that waiting when he finally got his wish. When he was asked about what it was like to finally fly in space, he just said, it's been a great experience. I don't think that there's any way anybody can express how beautiful it is up here. Well said, Deke. Yeah. Damn. He deserves it. Definitely. I'm glad he got that view. He waited 17 years for it. Yeah. So that's all for this episode of the Supercluster podcast. And remember, as always, space is for everyone. Ah, yes, Yes, <laughs>